Jesus, I pray that through our time together this morning, through all that we do together uh, in this stretch of time, we would uh, come to feel greater affection for you, greater affection for one another as your body, uh, that we would be uh, more ready to serve one another and to go out into the world and participate uh, in your mission. And we pray all of, all of this in your great name, Jesus. Amen. Okay. Uh, I trust, if you were here last week, that you were as blessed by Dave's words as I was. Uh, I was so encouraged by Dave's message last week. And I love, though he apologizes for them. I don't know if Dave's here this morning. Oh, he is. He apologizes for, for them both in his messages and in personal conversation for the tangents that he goes on. But I love Dave, Dave's tangents. And I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic. They're always full of wisdom and insight, full of care and concern. I love Dave's tangents. And ironically, the Apostle Paul, I mean, Dave's in good company because Paul goes on uh, a 13-verse tangent this morning, or uh, 12 verses, I suppose. So look at the passage that Becky read for us. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, dash, that's the longest dash, which I believe is called the M dash, um, but any uh, English teachers here might correct me on that later. Um, and so begins his long tangent, which doesn't end until verse 14. If you have a Bible there, look down at verse 14. It's finally here that he gets back to what he was originally saying. He says, for this reason, that's how he starts verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, long tangent, Verse 14, it kind of gets back on track. Oh, right, yes, for this reason. So what triggers this tangent that Paul goes on? Well, let's, let's, let's look at it. He says, first of all, he says, for this reason. Now, what is he talking about? What's the reason that he's talking about? Well, we'd have to go back to the previous passage that Dave uh, walked us through last week. Let me quote Brother Dave. I think I called him Elder Dave on the slide just to rankle him a little bit. Elder Dave. Um, uh, he said this, Paul wants us to consider that we belong in the great lengths that God, through Jesus, uh, are engaged in not just inviting you, but you being certain that you are one of us in the family of God. In other words, as Dave walked us through last week, God did a miracle. He created peace where there was no peace. In fact, the passage tells us he became our peace. It's a story of victory. It's a story of a miracle. And Paul, after talking about all this, at the beginning of chapter 3, begins to sort of burst out in prayer. But in the course of sort of opening up this prayer, he references his imprisonment. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And it's as though sort of something clicks in Paul's mind and he realizes that there's likely some explanation that would be valuable for the Ephesian believers. Because it's very possible that some of the Ephesians were wondering, well, Paul, how much of a miracle worker can God really be if you're stuck in prison? Can he really break down dividing walls of hostility, as Paul talked about, that have existed for generations if he can't even break down the walls that are holding you prisoner. How powerful can God really be? 
And so Paul's going to respond. He, he senses that perhaps some of the Ephesians might be wondering this, might be asking this question, and so he attempts to respond. Look again at, at verses 1 to 3. He's going to begin to show us something that he'll then work out through the rest of the passage. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So Paul wants the Ephesians to know that both his sufferings and his strengths are from God, and they're for the sake of the church. Both his sufferings that he's experiencing and his strengths, the ways God has empowered him, are from God for the sake of the church, for building up the body of Christ. So Paul will return to talking about his sufferings at the end of the passage. So for now, let's look at what he talks about related to his strengths the ways God has empowered him and his stewardship of those gifts. This word stewardship that shows up in verse 2 uh, in the Greek is oikonomia. Unsurprisingly, this is the word that we get economy from. And one theological dictionary defines this word in this passage as a plan involving a set of arrangements. Right? An economy is sort of a plan involving a set of arrangements. And in this case, we're talking about the plan of salvation, which as Paul has written about in Ephesians, he says back in chapter 1, is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so Paul's telling us now that he is a key part of this plan that God has had since before history began. Paul is a key part of that plan to bring salvation to the Gentiles. But there's another layer of meaning to this word, oikonomia, because the root of it is this Greek word oikos, which means household. So the economy of God's salvation, the plan involving a set of arrangements, is a plan that is oriented around God's family, his household. Clinton Arnold brings these two things together in his commentary in Ephesians. He says, at the center of this plan is God's intent to create a special household of people who actually form a home that he indwells. This is what we talked about last week. At the center of God's plan of salvation was this intention, this purpose to create a household of people who form a place where God actually dwells. And so Jesus, when he revealed himself to Paul, at that point Saul, on his way to Damascus, he gives him a job, a mandate to manage, to nourish, to grow a part of God's family. And as Paul will tell us, he wasn't just handed this job and sort of left to sink or swim. Uh, The first job, the first real job that I ever had was uh, at Ed Taylor Fuels, which was a, it, it, I think still is, a full-serve gas station in Cambridge. And uh, I was pumping gas. And at the point that I got this job, I did not yet have my license. And so I uh, hadn't really had many occasions to pump gas myself. Uh, but on the first day, the boss 
Mr. Taylor himself, uh, said, just get out there and pump the gas and you have to come in to do a credit or a debit. I'll show you how to do that, but just go. And I said, yeah, of course. Just go pump the gas. It's pump the gas, of course. I've seen my parents do this. It'll be fine. Uh, so I went out there. And any first job, you're a little nervous, right? You're a little nervous. You don't want to screw things up. So got, got it where it needs to go. The gas was going into the car, took the money, and it went well until the person drove off and I hadn't taken the thing out of the car. Um, that was a learning experience. Didn't make that mistake again. Uh, but the point is that I wasn't given a lot of on-the-job training. Now, arguably, I shouldn't have needed it to know, probably take the hose out of the car. Paul tells us that he wasn't just tossed into this, left to sink or swim. Look what he says in verses 4 and 5. When you read this, he writes to the Ephesians, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which wasn't made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, he says. What's, what's Paul talking about here? What's he claiming? He's claiming that he and other leaders of the church have been specially empowered by the Spirit for the work that they've been called to do. And that the church can and should verify this. Right? He says, when you read this, and it's not probably what we instantly picture in our mind, the most frequent ways that we read our Bibles, which is reading our Bibles, perhaps at home, uh, in a devotional time, or maybe listening to it in the car. In this uh, time and place. When he says, when you read this, he's talking about the, likely the only way they could have read it, which was out loud, together, gathered together. Not at home, not on their phones, together in a gathering of believers. And he says, you'll sense, you'll hear the Spirit's empowering of me for this work. He reiterates this in verse 7. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. Now this word that Paul uses in verse 7, minister, in the Greek is diakonos, which means servant. It's the word uh, we also get deacon from. And here we start to see the connection between Paul's strengths, the gifts that God has given him, and his sufferings. His empowerment from the Spirit and these difficult trials that he's experiencing. Because God called Paul, he's telling us, to be a servant of the church, offering up both the gifts that he's been given and enduring the trials that God allows him to experience, all for the sake of God's people. Now, again, Paul sort of seems to sense what some may be thinking in Ephesus there as this is read aloud, which is, you know, maybe some Gentiles there who were ministered to by Paul, perhaps even when he was in the city, uh, in the flesh, they think, well, yes, Paul, yes, you know, you've been sort of empowered for this work, but it's obvious why God chose you in the first place. You know, you always have the right words to say, such a, uh, an eloquent speaker. But Paul, again, maybe wonders if some will be thinking this. And in verse 8, he sort of cuts this off at the knees. He says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, 
this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Commentators say that uh, Paul, to make a point here, actually like is grammatically sort of ridiculous or, or uh, is nonsensical. He says, uh, one I think said in, in English it would be like saying, I'm the very least, leastest of all the saints. In other words, he's saying this has nothing to do with me. It was God's grace in which he called me and entrusted me with this work and empowered me to do it. So now I would ask us the question, friends, who has God given you to steward? Who has God given you to steward? Now, if you're in a particularly uh, sort of uh, dodging mood this morning, you might say, well, hang on. He hasn't said that all of us are given these gifts, but stick around as we get into the second half of Ephesians, and we'll read all about that. But a preview, chapter 4, verse 7. Paul writes, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. If you have little ones, kids, you are doing this stewarding work each and every day. If you lead in a missional community, you are a part of stewarding God's household. If you lead a DNA, encouraging people to discover new truths about who God is, nurturing one another's hearts, considering how are we going to act differently. That's DNA, in case anybody was wondering what it stood for. Discover, nurture, act. If you are a part of leading a DNA, you are a part of stewarding God's house. Those volunteers in City Kids right now are doing this stewarding work. When you have a gospel conversation with a neighbor or coworker, that's also, I would argue, this stewarding work. Gospel or mission is also a part of this stewarding, inviting new people to join this family. This is what verse 9 says when Paul writes, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, in Guelph as it is in heaven as we say. God has called and empowered each of us for the work of stewarding and serving on his mission. It's going to look different for each of us, but I believe he's given this work to all of us, friends. And at times, this stewarding work, this service, will carry a cost. And Paul returns to this at the end of the passage. Look at verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory, he writes. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Second question I would ask us first is, what are you called to steward? And secondly, are you willing to suffer in the course of that work? If you've been in a missional community for more than five minutes, you know that that is messy work, often frustrating. Discipleship in community is beautiful, it's rich, and it's challenging. And at times, if you're committed to it, you will suffer, you'll struggle. Raising kids, 
I was a youth pastor for a number of years and now journey with some of you who are raising teenagers. At moments, that's a, a work of suffering, of struggle. Raising kids to love Jesus is the challenge. For us as a church, corporately, leaning in, pressing in, engaging in a deeper way during this time of transition, for the sake of this church growing and being a more effective gospel presence in our city, that's going to be a work of, of struggle. All of us in various ways, I would guess, are going to be called to lay aside certain preferences or desires for the sake of this body growing and being built up. A Chinese theologian, Xia Xia Xiu, she writes about, she wrote this beautiful article about churches in Hong Kong and the challenge of loving and serving one another and the, the uh, conflict that can arise whenever churches in mainland China come up. How, what the connection ought to be, how to love those churches. And at the end of this article, she writes this. It's not on the screen. I'll just read it for us. A church, in its essence, is a community that's united with Christ in the midst of conflict. It demonstrates two perspectives, one earthly and the other transcendental. It's earthly because Christ's communities share the fully human characteristics of tension and fragility. Amen to that, right? If the pandemic showed us anything, it was that, you know, we are able to experience tension and we're a bit fragile. We many of us still feel that way. It's, uh, it is earthly because Christ's communities share the fully human characteristics of tension and fragility. It is transcendental because the true identity of church is the body of Christ and it's created by Christ. The church stands as a dynamic community in the process of growing into its fullness. The continuous struggle and unceasing efforts to achieve unity will make the church grow into greater maturity. And this is sort of all of what the second half of Ephesians is about. This process of growing into maturity together. Christ is doing this work, friends, of making all things new. That includes this work happening inside of us and in the world around us. And I believe that he has given each of us a part of that work, a part of that mission to participate in with him. There's a painting uh, called Making All Things New by an American artist named, named James B. Yannicked. And it shows, I don't know how we can see it with the bright, I mean, I'm glad for the sunshine. I'm not going to disparage the sunshine coming through the windows. Uh, but up at the top, it got cut off, but it says, I will make all things new. It's Christ standing triumphant over the pit of death and doing this renewing work, but bringing in all kinds of things that we might not expect. There's a lawnmower over here, a barbecue, a guitar a bicycle, flowers. Christ is doing this work every day, every moment, whether we're awake or asleep, praise God, doesn't depend on us, and yet he invites us into it. 
And I believe he's empowered each one of us for it. Will you steward those gifts? Are you willing to struggle and to suffer for the sake of participating in this work of making all things new? I pray that we are.